Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. It is time for a Tech Stuff Classic episode, which means it's Friday, so I hope you're all celebrating. This episode originally published back on February 13th, 2013. It is called Tech Stuff Gets Domestic Robots. Lauren Vogelbaum and I sat down to talk about domestic robots and where we're going with them. This is another one of those episodes that probably merits a follow-up, but I thought it'd be fun to listen to the original one back in 2013. So enjoy. This is a uh, topic that a listener of ours wanted to hear more about. So we thought, hey, we, we haven't really covered domestic robots. So, uh, yeah, let's let's do that crazy thing, yo. Yeah. And when people think of domestic robots, I think that the image that immediately pops into most people's minds is Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons. Yeah, the documentary series. The documentary series yeah, from, from the 1960s. The, of what the future will be like. This was, this was created in 1962 to 1963, set in 2062, by the way, if you didn't know that. So we've, we've got some crack in to get on. Yeah, I think it's okay, because their f- vision of the future did not incorporate some uh, pretty amazing technologies that we have at our disposal right now. That's fair. That's fair. But they did have this giant, robotic, human, life-size, humanoid made that could, uh, you know, sit around and drink milkshakes with you and have a conversation. And, and, and raise your kids for you. Raise your kids for no, you. You're, you're too busy space parents, right? So, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, Rosie the Robot kind of kind of was this idea of, like, the robot maid or the robot butler that could take care of all the menial chores that most of us do not like to do. Like, it, it just seems like it, it's one of those things that takes up valuable time that you could spend fragging people on Halo 4. Doing literally anything else other than washing dishes again. Yeah. They are washing always dishes, dirty. Washing dishes, folding laundry, cleaning windows. These are these, these chores that, that take up time that... Uh, you know, we just wish someone else would take care of that every now and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes we hire people for that, which right. is, in fact, probably enormously cheaper and easier than building a robot to do it. Because uh, a lot of these things are actually really hard to do. But we'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. So let's start off by talking about where the word robot comes from. And I'm sure a lot of you out there already know this story. But there was a Czech writer, as in someone who was from Czechoslovakia. His name, Or the Czech Republic. The Czech, I, at the time, now, it was Czechoslovakia. At the time, Thank Czechoslovakia. You. But mm-hmm. now the Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Carol Kapek, who wrote a play called R.U.R. And R.U.R. stands for Rossum's Universal Robots. And this was in 1921. Yeah, and the the word robot comes from the Czech word robota, which means forced labor or servitude. And uh, that word, in fact, comes from another word, rob, R-A-B. That word means slave. So uh, uh, now in in the original form, that did not necessarily mean an artificial life form of any type. It could a robot could be a person. It could be someone who has been forced to conform to a very specific set of behaviors and to perform those behaviors for the benefit of some larger entity. And this was kind of sure, sure. And this was kind of the crux of the play. It was exploring whether or not it was okay for machines to be used the way that we use people. Right. And yeah. So so. Eventually, the term robot became more about a device, a mechanism that can perform functions in an automated 
way and perhaps even in an autonomous way. Uh, autonomous and automated being two different things. Autonomous means that it can do it under its own direction. Right. It doesn't need someone there to press a button for it to, to be able to do whatever it does. Right, which is why we don't call, for example, our dishwashers or our toaster ovens or our washing machines robots. Right. Even though technically they are robotic. Yeah, they have they have features that are common to robots, though they themselves are not a robot. Right. Kind of like how I have features that are similar to a human being and yet defy explanation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that one right there. All right, that's fair. So before we get into the whole domestic robot history and, and the, the sort of things that have developed over the years in, in the field of domestic robots and where we are today and where we expect to go, I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about a survey that was conducted a few years ago by a company called Persuadable Research. Right. This was a the the last one that I saw was from 2012. Yeah, that was the the most recent one. The this uh, survey was to ask people, hey, uh, if you had the opportunity to purchase a robotic device that would perform your chores for you, would that be of interest to you? And 68 percent of the people surveyed said. Why, yes, it would. I would love to have a robot that could do things like clean windows or do laundry. Uh, also, I would like a robot that could move heavy stuff from one place to another so that I don't have to do it. Or provide better home security. Uh, personal assistant duties, I think, were high on the Health list. Health monitoring was up there, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and a lot of them thought that this sort of robot would be a, a very useful device. And, and in most cases, I think they were thinking of a single robot capable of doing multiple things. All of these things, yes. Yeah, not, not, not a whole bunch of different robots that are specialized, but more of a general purpose robot. Now, um, that, that was interesting enough, but also they were asking uh, more questions like, what form would you want this robot to be in? And it seemed like most people wanted to have a humanoid Robot. Huh. So we're talking about robots that have arms and legs and a head, you know, things that we would generally associate with the human form. Uh, and they also did not want their robots to necessarily have a gender. So the voice needed to be... Uh, and neither male nor female. Right. So kind of that... That stereotypical robot voice. robot voice, yes, mm-hmm. the one that the one that we all have, we all have a robot. I think we all have a robot voice, mm-hmm. and we all have a internet comments voice. Like we have a voice that we use when we describe internet comments to people. Like, yeah. you guys are awful. You are your show is bad, and you should feel bad. That's my internet voice. That's, that's not. That's not a very kind internet voice, Jonathan. I'm not saying that everyone on the internet who leaves comments sounds like that. I'm saying the people who leave those kind of comments sound like that. It's fair. That's entirely Look, if fair. If they can insult me, then I can insult them. You, you can. You, that's right. I have a, I have a medium. Eye for an eye. That's right. It's a harsh <laughs> podcast landscape, guys. It is on Watch out. like Donkey Kong. Uh, but no, that 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 they want. That's my internet voice. But my robot voice is, you know, of course, like, how can I help you? That sort of, you know. That's that's. I actually do not possess a robot voice. I don't think. What? So I'm I'm sorry. I'll work on one. Okay. Well, for we'll next we, time. Next gotta, time. We must get Vogelbaum. A robot voice. I don't really do voices. This is about it. Okay, well, we'll we'll break you of that habit sooner or later. Oh dear. Uh, so yeah, and also that that people, thirteen percent of respondents said they would be willing to pay fifteen thousand dollars or more for a comprehensive robotic assistant. That's a lot of money. Oh well, um, I mean when you when you think about it, that's you know that's that's the mid range for a decent car. Right. 
Yeah, you're talking about a And you're talking, you're talking about, about something that's, yeah. that's running around your house and doing everything you do. Yeah, but if it's a robot that's folding laundry, you're like, how much is 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 the fact that I don't have to fold laundry worth 15 grand? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it all depends on how much you hate laundry. Uh, most people said that they were... Their their limit was nine hundred ninety nine dollars. Like anything that was a thousand dollars or more was kind of outside the range. Uh, I think that's interesting because there are robots on the market right now, domestic robots that mm-hmm. have very specific uses. Like they they don't do things outside of whatever it is they were meant for. Uh, yeah, that are more expensive than that. Like yes. there there are pool robots, and we'll talk about those in a bit. That are fifteen hundred dollars. So this is so this is perhaps unrealistic of people to expect that sort of price point. And as you were mentioning before, it would end up being cheaper to hire someone to come and do this work for you, at least over a certain period of time. Maybe you could eventually find like how many years would it take mm-hmm. for a robot to make financial sense compared to hiring a human being? Somebody go do that math for us. I do not feel like doing it at all. Well, it also we don't have all the variables, right? Well, because because sure. you would need to know what is the uh, what's the average lifespan for a domestic robot. Mm-hmm. So without that knowledge, we can't really say like, well, if if you if you build in maintenance cost and repair costs, sure. then that adds to it, right? You don't necessarily have to repair someone who comes in and cleans your stuff. You just hire someone else because, you know, you're a heartless person. I mean, I'm just talking about me here, people. Right. I'm, I'm like, Clearly. From my perspective, I'm like, wow, it's really sad that uh, that my my uh, the, the people I hired to come in and clean my windows broke their legs. Thank goodness there's this other cleaning service I can hire instead. You can just leave those first guys right there on the sidewalk and just keep going. This is turning into a really terrible, really discussion? terrible discussion. Well, yeah, you should is... see the piles of people outside my home. You think this is bad? You should really take a look at them. Uh, but anyway, but yeah. so the takeaway that I got from this Persuadable Research Corporation survey was that what people want from their domestic robots is that they want them to be uh, really cute humanoid mobile PCs. Um, yeah. About in the price range, because a thousand dollars is about what you would pay for for, for a for a, a really good PC for for a decent PC. Yeah. And um, Bill Gates actually in two thousand six wrote an essay called "A Robot in Every Home," that was basically saying the same thing. He he said, uh, if I can quote, he said, we may be on the verge of a new era when the PC will get up off the desktop and allow us to see, hear, touch, and manipulate objects in places where we are not physically present. And this was kind of his vision for the future, that that we would have, if you guys have seen Farscape, sort of like the DRDs, more so than Rosie the, Rosie the Robot. Yeah, I don't know what a DRD is. So. <laughs> a DRD was, it stands for Diagnostic Repair Drones. And these were these kind of little, little bug-shaped, little trilobite-looking critters that would run around Farscape and do minor repair work and uh, play the Symphony of 1812 and et cetera, et cetera, as you needed them to. Okay. I can see the uh, pressing need for uh, the 1812 overture playing <laughs> when, I'm, uh, when I'm talking to a Muppet. Look, it depends on how crazy you get while you're lost in space. Okay. But- lost in space. Now, I can talk about that show, but that had a different robot. Anyway, I'm getting off track. So it's interesting that you say that, this whole trilobite idea, because, in fact, the very first domestic robot that I could come uh, that I came across in my research, as far as on the consumer level goes, so the first sure. robot that the average person could go out and buy for their home was a very specific use robot. It was the Electrolux trilobite. 
And it was a robot that looked kind of like a trilobite. And uh, it was a vacuum robot. And you've probably seen different vacuum robots. We will talk about a very famous one in a little bit. Sure. But the Electrolux trilobite was the, uh, the first robotic vacuum cleaner. And it hit the market in 2001. And the original model used ultrasonic sensors to navigate through an environment. So essentially it's, it's shooting out ultrasonic sound. So this is, these are signals that we cannot detect. They're outside mm-hmm. the range of human hearing. Uh-huh. And the, the signal would uh, emit from the robot, and if it, ba- if it encountered anything, it would bounce back. So like a, like a vacuum bat. Yeah, it was a vacuum bat. It was kind of like what Batman would be if he were a domestic cleaning person as opposed to a crime fighter. Uh, he would dress up as a bat and clean. The robot, what it would do is it would send out the signal. It would The ref- signal would reflect back, and that's how it would know how far away it was from uh, some other object. So when you have it set down to clean your living room and you've got all this furniture there, as it would approach the furniture, the signal would go out, bounce back. The robot would know, all right, I have to stop in three inches or I'm going to run into something, like uh-huh. a couch or whatever. And uh, so the earliest model had these ultrasonic sensors, and that was pretty much it. You could you could lay down these magnetic strips along the borders of your room so that it would not go not beyond cross. them. Okay. Which is important if, for in- instance, you happen to have a staircase and you right. don't want your extremely expensive trilobite robot to go take a tumble down the stairs. Yes, I, I imagine that those first ones were not at all inexpensive. I'm sure they were quite expensive, yes. And uh, I mean, it's still fairly expensive to get most of these sort of robots because uh, as the years go on, the technology gets more sophisticated, so each model that comes out has more features. Right. Uh, the second round of the Electrolux Trilobite also included infrared sensors. Okay. So it made it a little easier for the robot to sense its environment because one of the problems with the ultrasonic ones was that if it came across uh, something that was like a really sharp curve or whatever, the ultra the ultrasonic uh, responses wouldn't be accurate enough for it to oh, be able uh-huh. to get sure. around. Sure, sure. So that was the first one, and it also had a uh, base unit that it could automatically find, again, using ultrasonic sensors. The base unit, uh, you know, it sends out a signal, base unit picks it up, it sends out a signal, the robot hones in on mm-hmm. that signal. Right? So that it can plug back in and charge. Exactly. So uh, I've seen uses of this in toys as well. So, for example, there was um, uh, uh, Lego has a series of robots that you can build yourself. Right, right, yeah. Robot kits, right? Yeah. And the robot kits come with a programmable base, and the programmable base is actually really cool. It lets you um, plug and play uh, robot commands into your robot. Oh, cool. So essentially, it's like it's like if then. Uh, commands. If this robot encounters this situation, then the robot should behave this way. And one of the things you can do is you can buy different types of sensors to be on your Lego robot. Mm-hmm. And one of them in, is the ultrasonic sensor, which allows a robot to really zero in on uh, objects. And uh, here at How Stuff Works, for our big holiday party of 2012, we had some of, we had someone come in with these robots and show them off. And one of the robots had just simple infrared sensors that would allow it to detect when it was coming close to the edge of the play of the area, field. Mm-hmm. right? And it would turn around and come back in. The other robot had the infrared sensors and the ultrasonic, which allowed it to zero in on the the its oh, opponent, cool. uh-huh. so it could go right after the other robot. Uh, clearly, in the domestic situation here, we're talking more about the robot just avoiding damage. Sure. And also avoid damaging other stuff in the environment, like your furniture. Um, I think this is a good time to take a quick break 
and thank our sponsor. And now back to the show. All right, getting back into domestic robots, uh, there's a company that you, you pretty much have to talk about uh, called iRobot, which is kind of funny because iRobot makes me think of something else. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, we didn't even mention uh, Isaac Asimov well, earlier. I think this is a perfect opportunity before we dive into the company. Yeah, a science fiction writer working in, oh, you might be better at this than I am, in the 60s, is that correct? Uh, and earlier, yes. And earlier, but um, I uh, wrote wrote the three laws of robotics. Yeah, these were the, the laws that uh, that in within the Asimov stories guided the robot's behavior so that they would... Uh, try and follow ethical programming. Uh, the idea being that the, the basic three rules, I don't have them written in front of me, so I apologize for the fact that I'm going to get these out of order and that I'm paraphrasing, but that the robot could not do anything to harm itself right? It, unless it would mean that it would allow others to come to harm. So in other words, first a robot couldn't harm itself, a robot could not harm other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there was another one. I think it's property that robots can't hurt. But anyway, the 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 most important rule of all of them was that a robot could not allow a, could not hurt a person or allow a person to be hurt to come to damage. Yeah, yes, through inaction, uh, and that overruled all other robotic rules. So if it meant that the robot would end up being damaged in the process of preventing a living thing from being hurt, the robot would go ahead and override that rule and and allow itself to be damaged so that it could save the person. Uh, most of Asimov's stories involving robots had had uh, stuff to do with uh, unintended consequences of these what what appeared to be ironclad rules. Right, because when you give a logical set to a very sophisticated computer, it may or may not find ways around. Right, and and, and it's not necessarily that the computer is trying to behave in a uh, in a. a, a, a a malevolent way. Sure. Uh, for example, th- here's another example. This is one of those things about the robot apocalypse that you always you know, hear science fiction writers talk about, and some futurists as well. Uh, let's say that you have a super intelligent computer robot, and you tell the robot, uh, I want you to make humankind, uh, I, want, I want you to bring about world peace. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you are smarter than we are. Bring about world peace. It's possible that the robot could come to the conclusion that the reason why there's not world peace is because there are people. All of those pesky humans running around causing wars. So if Get we just, rid of all, kill all humans. And then you've got peace. Yay. So, Wait, no, not yay. Yeah, that's 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 the, the classic example. But so, yes. You don't have to worry about your domestic vacuum robot doing that. Probably not. I've, I've, known, I've known an iRobot Roomba, and it did not seem malevolent, very, very malevolent no, it, to it, me. The it, do- it, my dog was not too sure about it. Right. But the, do- the dog might have a completely different opinion about the intentions of the iRobot Roomba. All right, well, to talk about iRobot, before we, we talk about the Roomba, what's interesting to me is that it's a company that was formed in 1990 oh, wow. by three MIT associates. Uh, those three MIT associates were Rod Brooks, Colin Engel, and Helen Greiner. And they wanted to bring robots out of the realm of uh, academe and, mm-hmm. and industry. Those were the two places where you would find a robot pretty much uh, before 1990, with some exceptions. There were some toys that were right. I had semi-robotic. A, I had a very annoying robot toy when I was a young child. Did so, you? Yeah. All of all of the noises. My my aunt who didn't have kids yet got it for me. And, of course, uh-huh. yeah, that's always the relative who does that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there were 
toys and like hobbyists had some access to some robotics and a lot of people were doing DIY stuff. But much like the field of early computers, most people were just kind of going like, what is this thing good for? Yeah. Yeah. So what can we do with it? Consumers didn't have an option at, as of yet. This is way back in 1990. And to so, purchase. Yeah. First, they uh, well, first their company was called IS Robotics, but they would change that further down the line. And they originally built their business plan on uh, the idea of space exploration robots. So, huh. their first designs were for NASA, and uh, they created some robots that were meant for things like lunar exploration and uh, uh, spaceship robot type cre- creations and um, uh, planetary exploration robots. And these designs allowed them to get some contracts with the government. And the whole point of them making these designs, besides the fact that this was something they were genuinely interested in, was that it would allow them to gain the capital they would need to invest in a consumer robot. Uh Because that's not a small undertaking. Remember, this is a decade before we see the first consumer robot on shelves. So it's as Lauren was saying before – It's not the most efficient or economically feasible way for you to take care of minor uh, chores around the house. It can Mm -hmm. be a very expensive thing. So they needed to raise some capital first before they could start getting into consumer robots. You know, they couldn't just hit the ground running doing that. So first they started working on robots for space exploration uh, missions. Uh, They developed a robot called the iRobot 510 PackBot. And this was a search and rescue and bomb disposal robot. Oh, wow. So it was used by the military. And they still do a bunch of military work, I believe. They do. So, uh, yeah, you got to hope that your uh, Roomba does not get mixed up with the PackBot uh, 510. Yes. Fingers crossed. Uh, to be fair, the 510 PackBot, it's not, it's not a military robot in the sense of one that's weaponized. It's not an attack bot. No. It's, most of these are, in fact, going on uh, recon missions or right. to defuse bombs yeah. where so that, you know. Or, or possibly to, uh, to, like I said, search and rescue. So for first responders, mm-hmm. they might send a robot. If there's a building, for example, that's been the, the target of a bomb then sending a robot in to look for survivors mm-hmm. uh, could mean saving the lives of first responders. Oh, sure. You know, it's it's one of those things where you think, well, this is a really expensive robot, but compared to a human life, it is negligible. Yes. So uh, iRobot began to make those as well. And again, this helped iRobot gain the capital they needed to go into the consumer market. And one of the other big uh, projects they did before they got into consumer robots was called Auto Cleaner. An auto cleaner was meant for S.C. Johnson Wax. And uh, it was an industrial cleaning robot. Uh, and this this is kind of the project that inspired a couple of the engineers, once the project was winding down, mm-hmm. to look into a way of building a consumer model of a of cleaning, a cleaning robot. robot. And that was what would eventually become the Roomba. And uh, it was 97 when they first started working on it, and the Roomba would not hit store shelves until September 22nd, 2002. Wow. So, um, you know, by then the, the Electrolux Trilobite had been on the market for almost a year, and then they launched the, uh, the iRobot, which do- totally different company, obviously, launched the Roomba, which has, I think, become almost like the... Standard it's become term. synonymous, basically. Yeah, yeah it's, like it's, Kleenex. Exactly, or Xerox. It's it's or, or Jello. F- fridge. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where the the term has almost just substituted the idea of mm-hmm. vacuum robot Roomba. Yeah, well, shorthand. As of, as of 2011, over six million of the buggers have been sold. Yeah. So so, uh, so um, there's a whole bunch of jokes that are coming to mind, and I'm going to leave them all alone. 
Excellent. But uh, you're all welcome. iRobot does make several other kinds of things. Yes, they do. They make they make a, a iRobot scuba, which is a mop. Yeah, scuba uh, actually has an interesting approach. Uh, well. It's good to compare it to the Roomba. So the Roomba uses essentially three different kinds of brushes. There's one brush that that just sort of helps sweep particles within the path into the path of the Roomba. But then it has these two brushes that are used to pick up the larger types of debris. Mm -hmm. And uh, so these two brushes spin uh, in a way where they're... One is clockwise, the other is counterclockwise. Or Wittershins, yes. And they use that motion to, to, I'm, to I'm gesticulating, and that's not helping. Right, yeah, they're, they're using this this opposite rotating motion to flick stuff up into the bin the, the, that is inside the Roomba, the, the, the refuse bin, if you prefer, or trash bin. Um, and then it also has a vacuum that uses suction to suck up the finer particles. Okay. Uh, finer being smaller, not of higher quality. And then the scuba... Its method is it uses a, it has a vacuum as well to suck up loose particles, and then it it sprays the floor with a combination of water and cleaning solution. Then uses a rotating brush to scrub the floor. Then it sucks up the dirty water into a waste bin that is separate from the water and cleaning solution bin. So there's two different uh, containers inside the scuba for this stuff. So mm-hmm. that way you don't mix the two. Clearly, you wouldn't want dirty water to go back into there. No. And then uh, it uses a technology called iAdapt to monitor and respond to its environment. So. The Roomba and the Scuba both have to be able to maneuver through an environment and uh, and cover an entire floor uh, because, I mean, it wouldn't do you any good if the Roomba just kind of wandered aimlessly and then went to its charging station. You go in and like, well, this one meaningless path is clean, but everything else is filthy. Right. So it has to be able to, move, to make its way across To move around the in, a, in a space that was not necessarily intended for a robot to move around right. in. Because, yeah, while humans can instinctively look at a coffee table and go, I shouldn't walk directly into that. Yeah, robots don't necessarily know that off the top. They have to actually be programmed to not do that. Right. Uh, we'll get into more of that in a second, too. But yeah, those are the the two big ones, Roomba and Scuba. Yeah, yeah. They, I think at CS twenty thirteen or no, it, it might have been in twenty twelve. Um, they also introduced the iRobot Luge, which is a gutter cleaner. Yeah, the, I've seen examples of the Luge for a couple of years, but yeah, it's it's uh, essentially this thing that you put in your gutter and it just kind of it kind of goes. It goes down like a bullet and then just starts scooping out gunk. Mm-hmm. So do not stand near your gutter while the while that sucker is going Do not on. stand in your gutter. That's near your gutter, like underneath. Or, oh, oh, or under ooh, yeah, no, no. gross. Now gross. remember though, if your head's in the gutter, your eyes are looking at the stars. Just to paraphrase that's, a that's Mr. Deep. Wild. That's deep. That is deep. Oh, that's pretty. Yeah, it can get pretty deep in the gutter. Anyway, uh, th- so there are other types of domestic robots as well. I mean, these these were probably and, the best known because mm-hmm. they are... Because uh, it's a huge brand. And they've been around for a few years. Mm-hmm. But there's uh, robotic lawnmowers. Mm-hmm. I, I think ro- I think iRobot actually does one of those as well. Yeah, possibly. so uh, they might. Uh, I, know that, I know there are quite a few brands that do have robotic lawnmowers. And so these are... Uh, again, using that same te- those same technologies, they're using collision detection to make sure that they don't uh, bang into anything. Uh, most of them have uh, little kill switches inside them, so that if they're tilted or turned over, the blade stops spinning immediately. So cool. that way, you don't 
endanger anyone, like a mm-hmm. little kid wondering what this thing is. Hey, I'll put my hand on it. Yeah, that's yeah. that can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they uh, also can, you know, you can define the parameters of your yard so that the lawnmower works within those parameters and doesn't, you know, just suddenly like, well, all done here. Let's do the neighbor's yard. Right. Um, and then the next one, the next one. Uh, so there, there are examples of that. They, it works on very similar uh, technologies mm-hmm. as the, the vacuum robots. Another similar robot, uh, window cleaning robots that use suction to attach themselves to a window. And then, uh, again, with the cleaning solution and the Interesting. water. I haven't seen any of these. They, they sound terrifying. <laughs> there was uh, one unveiled at CES 2013 oh, called the uh, EcoVac WinBot. I wish I had seen that now. And uh, it's, yeah, yeah, it's supposed to debut later this year for under $400, supposedly. Okay. And, yeah, reusable pads to wash and dry. It has a little squeegee in there. So I guess you set it on the window and then it goes. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. This is another example of why people are a little uh, disappointed. Not that they should be, but they're disappointed in domestic robots because it's not a robot that just comes out of a closet and then takes a look around and says, oh, these are the four things that need to be done in this right. room. Like I need to, to sweep and mop the floors. I need to clean the windows. I need to fold the laundry. And I need to kick the kid off the TV because he's been on it too long, mm-hmm. uh, which is what you know Rosie the Robot could do. It's Jonathan from 2020 again. Uh, The robot's still beeping, so we're going to take another break while I try and figure out how to turn this thing off. Yeah, I've got one called the Dress Man. Dress Man. Dress Man. Looks like a kind of a mannequin uh, torso, but it essentially uses... uh, The robot itself inflates and uses hot air to dry and press shirts. It's a robotic iron. That's that's terrific. Yeah, I could use one. I definitely tend to wear wrinkled stuff. A yeah, lot. I think I iron approximately never. So yeah. that's yeah. There's also uh, robots in pet care, robotic litter boxes that uh, self scoop away. Right, that's Your, a valuable service. Uh huh. Refilling food and water trays. Uh, there are robot pool cleaners, uh-huh. which we talked about. A bre- you know, I mentioned that there was a fifteen hundred dollar one, um, and and you know that. These are all different levels of sophistication. Not all of them need all the sensors that other ones need because the the job they do doesn't require it. So uh, not every single robot is going to be decked out with sensors. Uh, sure. However. Uh, the future robots might might be decked out with sensors. We've got a lot of development uh, in the robot space. Uh, people who want to create general purpose robots that can tackle different tasks so that you don't have, you know, eight different robots to do all of your chores. You've got one robot that can do all of them. Right. Uh, Willow Garage is one company that has been making a lot of waves. Yeah, they've got a, a robot called the PR2, which stands for Personal Robot 2, the number two. And it's essentially a research and development platform. It's not necessarily meant to be a robot that a consumer will go out and buy. First of all, it's like around $400,000. Yeah, that's the price tag. Prohibitively expensive for most of us, including myself. Um, and But what, what this is meant to do is it's meant to allow people to build apps, robot apps, that would increase the functionality of the robot. So you might create an app that's a laundry folding app mm-hmm. or an app that's a fry an egg app. And uh, the robot is 
humanoid in the sense that it has arms. It's got like sensors that are in a, a head, a head-like thing. Yeah, it, it, it looks like a torso with arms and uh, uh, wheels. It doesn't have legs. It's got mm-hmm. a, it's got a, a wheeled base, and it's a it's a little from what I saw. I didn't see like a, an actual scale like next to a human being, but to me, it looked like they came up a little higher than your waist, uh-huh. maybe mid chest area. Uh, is what it looked like. It could be that they're much taller than that, but that's not what it uh, seemed to be when I was looking at the videos. Um, I had all of the robot videos that I've watched in the past 24 hours are running into my head, yeah, so, so I've got no To be fair, no you, clue. you were watching a lot of like uh, robots that had nothing to do with this. It's just just robots. Just robots. Just robots. It's Tra- a hobby. It Transformers. But- Michael Bay kick. Uh, stuff blew up. Anyway, uh, I would watch much better robot videos than those. Uh, Come on. Nice. Well done. You shall live. So uh, the, the PR2 robot is really meant for developers to create software for this, this robot. Oh, right. It's all open platform. Op- open source developing um, is highly encouraged, and it's mostly trying to get people excited about it. Also, Willow Garage is doing uh, the TurtleBot, which works together with uh, iRobot makes something called the Create, which is a Roomba base that mm-hmm. has a, a loading dock for whatever other stuff you want to kind of shove in there. And it's for home developers. Um, you can you can hook it up with a Connect, with a netbook, anything else you want. Cool. And teach it how to do your own stuff. Neat. Yeah, the, the things that allow hackers more uh, tools to play with stuff is always cool. And the PR2 has some pretty hefty uh, hardware on it. It's got two computers on it uh, that have uh, eight-core processors. Um, each each computer has an eight-core processor, 24 gigs of RAM, and two terabytes of disk space. Ooh, wow. Uh, and um, according to that, to, to what I was, uh, to one of the articles I was reading, all of that heavy-duty hardware gives the PR2 the capability of folding a towel in just six minutes, which is down from 24 minutes, which just means it's not the most efficient towel-folding device Ever. Well, sure, but towels are towels are tricksy. No, yes, towel. Uh, boy, towels are so much trickier than say t-shirts. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if, if you're if you're lo- looking at it as a as a human, then no, towels are pretty simple. But if you're looking at it as a robot, uh, towels are are floppy. They move around. They don't. They don't. See, and here's here's the rub. This is the problem, is that teaching a robot to do something that's simple for a human is incredibly complex. Yeah. I mean, if, if you teach a robot how to play chess, for example, a chess is one of those if-then statement yeah, kind a, of things. Only so many potential things you can do within a chess game. Sure. There, there are a lot of them, mm-hmm. but there is a limit. There's an upward limit of the things you are capable of doing within the context of a chess game. If you ask a robot, however, to go to the kitchen, pick up a mug of tea, and bring it back into the podcast room, uh, that's, I mean, that's that's incredibly complicated. Yeah, because you never know what could be in the way. I mean, the, if the environment is constantly the same and the, the parameters for that task are always identical... Mm-hmm. That's one thing. But when you're in an environment that's dynamic, that can change over time, maybe there's a chair that's in the way that normally wouldn't be. Maybe the mugs are all dirty, or maybe there's only only clean mugs are in the dishwasher, as if people use that thing. Come on, how stuff works, people. Or, or maybe maybe some mugs are more delicate than others, and it crushes the mug to a fine powder instead right. of picking it up. And then pours the tea on it and brings you a wet pile of mug powder. Which is not delicious. No, it's. I I recommend you do not drink ceramic 
powder, that would probably not go over well. No, no. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that teaching a robot to deal with these kind of changing uh, environments is really challenging. And there are a lot of companies that are working on this with various types of artificial intelligence to deal with this. I mean, think about it this way. You, if I walk into a room that I have never been in before, but I have all of my normal senses. Oh, right, right. right. If, if the lights are on, if lights we are haven't... on, and I'm able to see, mm-hmm. you know, I've got my glasses on because I am nearsighted. Mm-hmm. Let's say I walk into this room and I, I take a look around the room. Uh, I can get around that room fairly effectively, assuming there aren't like laser death traps or something in it. Just a typical room. Like there's there's some chairs and some other furniture around. So as long as I haven't built the room, right? Then. I can get from point A to point B without killing myself or bumping into something or, you know, otherwise making an idiot of myself more so than I normally do. A robot goes into that room. If it's never been there before, it has to have a lot of sophisticated equipment to be able to map out that room and then uh, maneuver through that map. Mm -hmm. And it also needs to be able to map dynamically, to be able to update this map uh, in real time. And react changing, to it exactly, in real time, which is a lot of processing power. A lot of processing power, and it requires fairly sensitive and sophisticated sensors. Mm-hmm. So we take it for granted because it's our natural way of life. Sure. You know, we walk into a room, and we that's just the way things are. But for a robot, there is no natural way of life. We have to program all of that into the robot, and that is really, really tricky. And it gets even more tricky when you start talking about things like, can the robot navigate stairs? Uh, there are some robots that can. For sure. instance, uh, Honda's Asimo can go up and down stairs, but it needs to be, the stairs have to be programmed in Asimo. At least in the, the last I read, Asimo could not navigate a set of stairs that it had not encountered before. Now, right. It could get through a room it hadn't encountered before because its sensors were sophisticated enough so that if you said, all right, Asimo, I need you to pick up the red ball that's in this room, Asimo could navigate through a mm-hmm. room even if I'd never seen it before and get to the object. And this is, if you haven't seen one of these critters, it is it is bipedal. It, yes. it looks more or less like a like a person. I think it's about four foot two yeah, it's or a, so. Yeah, it's a smallish human. It's, mm-hmm. it's Lauren-sized. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. I'm, hey, I'm 5'2". I'm gigantic compared to that. Asimo, Asimo, yeah, you could take him. I totally or could. Or take it. I keep saying him, but Asimo doesn't technically have a gender. It's, it is genderless. It is It is a robot. That, it looks like a little spaceman, though. It does. It, it kind of, honestly, it creeps me out. I'm kind of sort of not okay with humanoid robots. Have I you, mean, Have you seen it run? I, I have. It has, I it really... has this little hopping run. Because Asimo, that was, that was one of the things that was famous about Asimo, was that it was the first uh, robot of that size to be able to run. And by definition, running is a, is a method of conveyance where at some point both your feet are off the ground. Okay. And uh, most robots had to have at least one foot in contact with the ground at all times. In order to support, yeah, yeah or to they fall over. Sure. And, uh, and it does mean that you have to program very sophisticated sensors in the robot to be able to have both feet come off the ground. And when, when a foot makes contact with the ground again, the robot has to be very carefully balanced mm-hmm. so that it can react in the right way so it remains upright. And Asimo, they, they achieved that with Asimo. So when it runs, it, it's really this little hoppy run that looks kind of comical mm-hmm. when you when you first see it. Um, but Asimo also was, had a lot more sophistication than uh, than previous versions of robots did. And um, I, I wrote a whole article about Asimo, and I got a chance to see Asimo in person. Uh, actually, anyone could because uh, Asimo was at Disneyland's Innoventions. Right, right. And uh, it was it was 
interesting to see. Now, again, Asimo is kind of like a, an example of what a domestic robot might one day look like, but it, it really illustrates how challenging it is to build a robot that is bipedal and humanoid. It just doesn't it's not it's not the easiest design. Oh, right. It doesn't necessarily make uh, development sense. It's easier in the long run to to build these kind of small things, the Roomba, the window washer, et cetera, et cetera. Right. If, if we're going to, I mean, because we can either we can either build robots to interact with our environment or we can build our environment to interact more easily with robots. Right. And that would involve, you know, having an extra entire space in our kitchen so that a robot can uh, can access all of our food and cook for us. Right. Rather than, you know, set it loose in there and just kind of see what it does. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's there are a lot of challenges and granted there are very smart people working on these challenges to try and and overcome them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other challenges as well. Uh, there are emotional uh, challenges because uh, the more humanoid you make a robot, the more likely you are to develop some sort of emotional attachment. There are people who find their Roombas to be perfectly charming. There are people who have named their Roombas. Apparently, or most them. people name their Roombas. Yeah, so it ends up becoming almost like a pet, mm-hmm. even though this is this is a, a, a an object that has no sentience. There is sure. no emotion in this object whatsoever. But they seem because they they are animated in the sense oh, yeah. they move around and, and go through an environment. They to, seem. I used to talk to mine all the time, and you know. It, well, to be fair, Lauren, com- you just talk to yourself all the time Aww, too. That's so entirely fair. Yeah, I was. I mean, yeah. So uh, of course you talk to it all the time. However, if it had looked, I mean, uh, you know, the way the way that I reacted to the the videos I was watching of um, of the Azimo. I'm kind of creeped out by it. I'm not really okay with a humanoid robot, which gets... Brings to the concept of the uncanny valley. Right. right? Where you you start to... The closer you approach the appearance of a human, the more likely you are to make it an unsettling experience Mm -hmm. for someone to look at. Uh, Right. Um, Now, if you were to ever get to a point where the robot is indistinguishable from a human being, Mm -hmm. you would bridge, theoretically, you would bridge the uncanny valley and it would no longer be uh, an issue. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when you get really close, but not exactly there so that there's something that's off. And it just really it it, it unsettles you in yeah. a in a very Freudian itch in between your shoulder blades kind of yeah. way. It's it's it gives you the willies mm-hmm. in the uh, in the American sense of the word. Please, <laughs> please, Brits, don't write to me. Right. I'm not being rude. We're not <laughs> trying to be anyway. Now I am. Ha ha. Anyway, yeah. Uh, the, the you get to the these robots that look kind of human, but they're not quite right, and that. Definitely gives kind of an unsettling feeling. The example I always hear, though, this isn't robots, this is computer generated uh, uh, imagery, uh, is the film Polar Express. Oh, yeah. And the, when, the, when the trailers came out for the Polar Express movie, the, the animated models looked very lifelike, but the eyes were not quite right. And yeah. it kind of gave the sort it's of. It's that deadlights kind yeah. of thing that you get. A little creepy. Now, as as we get better and better at that, there may be a time where we do bridge that gap. But uh-huh. We get that that David from uh, Prometheus kind of thing, where right. all robots look like Michael Fassbender, and that's pretty much okay. I was thinking back to AI personally, but uh, or, it's because I want my robots to look like Jude Law. That, that's entirely fair. We're we're allowed to disagree on. Okay, all right. I'm glad I'm glad we've reached that uh, that accord. Excellent. We've we've kind of covered the whole topic here. The future of domestic robots, I think. 
more likely likely than not, we're going to see more uh, specification type mm-hmm. robots. You know, robots made for specific use. Um, it'll still be quite a while before we get robots that can be general purpose domestic robots, mm-hmm. especially the humanoid ones. I think that's easily uh, more than a decade away, just because the 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 stuff that we could do now is incredible, but it requires so much computing horsepower and such a huge support system around it. It's yeah. not feasible for the yeah. Home. The, the the hardware is kind of getting there. Hardware is cheap enough these days that that I think that that part is on the feasible end. But it's really the the software that yeah. we do not have the capacity yet to no, no. to run the programs necessary. Yeah, so I mean if you if you had a supercomputer in your home that could run the robot for you so that the robot uh, would not have to carry around its own superhuman robot brain, that might help, but uh, I don't know a lot of people who have supercomputers, you know, just stored away in their their gaming room or whatever. Not not too many of us. Nope. I'm, I definitely do not number among them. But anyway, that's kind of the, the lowdown on domestic robots as they stand now and how they may be in the future. I would love to see robots that come out that have this sort of adaptability, like the kind of stuff that Willow Garage is walk, working on, where you've got mm-hmm. these robots that, you know, depending upon what apps you download, they can do different stuff. And that wraps up another classic episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, It's one of those topics that I think is fascinating because the more I learn about the what goes into designing these robots, the more I appreciate how complicated it is because you're not just designing the systems. You're not just engineering the robotics so that the thing does the thing you need it to do. You also have to start taking human psychology into account. And once you start looking at how humans interact with robots Things change in ways you probably didn't expect when you were just trying to work out the kinks of the mechanical aspect. I find that fascinating. So this is a topic I'm sure I will return to in the future. If you guys have suggestions for future topics I should cover, email me. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. You can go to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. There's an archive there of every episode that's ever published. It's searchable. Go check that out. And there's also a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 